is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. And I'm Mike Simpson. We're in the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. Seems like we're living in two different Americas. One for those who are vaccinated, the other... For those who aren't, cases uh, going up right now. Data shows the unvaccinated are the main drivers. COVID rates are up around the world, and some countries are even reimposing restrictions. During the pandemic, the CEOs got a big boost to their pay while most workers struggled. Those struggling workers are headed back to the office. We'll get into how people are feeling about it. But we start with the upticks in cases and how it's a big problem for the unvaccinated. Dr. Stuart Ray, Vice Chair of Data Integrity and Analytics at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. So again, as we mentioned, kind of two different uh, Americas, right? The vaccinated, the unvaccinated. That's right. We're seeing uh, increasing cases in many areas, often at low vaccination rates. And we're seeing deaths almost exclusively in people who are unvaccinated, tragically. So is this what it ends up looking like? You know, the places where the levels are high mean that their case rates stay relatively low, although there's still, if you have a large city like this one and 30% aren't vaccinated yet, that's still a whole bunch of people who could wind up in the hospital, potentially. But then these other areas with really low rates to begin with, they get it even worse? Well, I think that, you know, we're seeing disparities that are striking, including, you know, places like Southwest Missouri, where uh, they've had... Uh, stretched resources uh, in summer. And I think, you know, we have an overlap of multiple forces. One is uh, declining rates with uh, some early gains in vaccination that have sort of stagnated. And then uh, we also see the summer effect, which probably blunts surges like the one we're experiencing now. But I think that when we get into fall and winter, we may see a very different picture. So uh, what I'd like you to do for a minute, doctor, is is address that person who might be listening to this program right now who is undecided uh, about getting vaccinated. Uh, they're waiting for more information about getting vaccinated. They don't want to get vaccinated. There are all kinds of different reasons. What would you tell them? Well, I think that, I, you know, having grown up in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, I know a lot of folks who are in these different bins, and I think there are a lot of reasons why uh, people are hesitant, uh, and you outlined some of those. I think that as the data accumulate and these disparities become more apparent, uh, when people see the local effect of hesitancy uh, in communities where people are reluctant, I think that kind of evidence will begin to erode the hesitation. I, I understand that things are new, and for some people, they're early adopters, and some people are uh, more cautious. And I think that part of that uh, will be addressed as we accumulate experience. And we see that the complication rates are exceedingly low, uh, comparable to other vaccines, and that uh, we're still seeing deaths in people who are unvaccinated. For the Delta variant, uh, on the scale of it's bad, but maybe it's a lot of noise, to the scale of it's really bad and it's going to find you, uh, which is it? Where do you fall? Well, I think that it's pretty clearly more infectious. It's remarkable to think about the fact that six months ago, we didn't know about the Delta variant. And, it, you know, it was sort of the, a gleam in the virus's eye in, in another continent. And with many, many cases ongoing in the U.S., this variant was able to get a foothold and then uh, become a dominant strain in the United States in, in many states. So, it's clearly more infectious. And so I think that this is two things. One is 
more infectious means that we need a higher proportion of people immune in order for us to contain this epidemic, kind of like making trees flame retardant in a forest. You know, you've got to, the hotter the, the fire, the more you've got to do to slow it down. Uh, the other part of this is this is a pattern we've seen. We saw the D614G variant that appeared last summer that never really got a name. And then the alpha, beta, gamma, delta variants that we've seen this year. And if we continue to let this virus travel among people and evolve as it replicates, we're going to see uh, additional variants. I hope none of them will fully evade our vaccines that we have now, but I think we are running risks when we let this virus have its way with us. So, you know, there are people uh, who are turning the argument kind of, I think, upside down on its head, and they're saying, well, you see, uh, those of you who got vaccinated you were told you're protected. Now along comes this Delta thing, and we hear about these breakthrough cases, people who were vaccinated, they're still getting COVID. And so their argument goes, then why bother? Yeah, I think that we know that a seatbelt won't keep you from dying in an accident, but it's protective. And uh, there are no 100% in medicine or life. So, you know, when we look at the evidence, the evidence tells us that the people who are dying are the unvaccinated, not the vaccinated, but they're going to be exceptional vaccinated people who have deficits either known or unknown in their immune response that kept them from having full protection, or they got a big snoot full of virus and uh, intense exposure might overcome vaccine protection, just like a really bad accident will uh, make your airbags and, and seatbelts ineffective. So, you know, there are multiple reasons why this happens, but I think if people are looking for exceptions, then they're really hunting for a reason not to be vaccinated and to remain hesitant. It's not really the evidence that's swaying them. I think the same goes for the those who don't want the vaccine until it gets full FDA approval. That's largely a bureaucratic process. We have more evidence for safety and efficacy for these vaccines that we have in the United States than we've had for any vaccine uh, that was approved by the FDA in the past. Dr. Stuart Ray, Vice Chair of Data Integrity Analytics, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks. Just when it looked like we were emerging from the pandemic, the more transmissible Delta variant hit, and it is wreaking havoc in countries with high and low vaccination rates. So last segment, we talked about the uh, two different Americas. This is also playing out around the world. Dr. Prapat Jha, Professor of Global Health at the University of Toronto, epidemiologist at Unity Health Toronto. So Dr. Jha, what countries are having the most issues right now? We're seeing COVID upticks basically where the Delta variant is um, spreading widely and in unvaccinated or undervaccinated populations. So the thing with this virus um, is that it responds very well to um, two doses of the vaccine, but in populations that either have no doses or only one dose, then it doesn't work as well. And this is the main concern is in parts of the US, what you've got is not just vaccine hesitancy, but vaccine hostility. Uh, you know, there's anger being directed towards people who are doing public health efforts. And so this all is brewing for potentially a big catastrophe in some parts of the United States where they, they will have um, under-vaccinated or unvaccinated Americans and 
um, they will be the ones that are contributing to new infections in the population. That was Dr. Prabhat Jha, Professor of Global Health, University of Toronto. Coming up after this short break, while most American workers suffered during the pandemic, CEOs cashed in. The pandemic hit workers in the U.S. hard. Some took pay cuts or fewer hours and others, well, others had to deal with furloughs or were laid off. But that was not the case for America's CEOs. Yeah, the disparity between worker pay and then what the uh, guys at the top make, that continues to grow. Rosanna Landis-Weaver, compensation experts, program manager at As You Sow. It's a nonprofit shareholder advocacy organization. So leaders of the S&P companies got an average raise of $700,000 last year during the global pandemic. Uh, Rosanna, why is that the case? I think it's very hard to find anyone who can justify it. And, and in fact, this year, I think even shareholders are starting to, to uh, bulk and vote against pay. Um, you know, you talk about that. That's the average, right? The 399. Yeah. I was just looking at AMC. The median employee last year made $5,500. The pay ratio was 3,803 to one. I mean, 100 workers paid at the median rate would have to work until 2059 until their combined pay was equal to what the CEO made last year. Then we were talking earlier, some of them said, we're gonna take pay cuts. And some of them were, were pretty large. They said, I'm gonna slash my salary by 40% or 50% for a little while. But then since a lot of people are paid with stocks and things like that, even those guys, it turns out, ended up making more money. So they didn't end up taking the cut at all. Right. And I mean, there were some that did. There were some who made real sacrifices. And when we talk about averages, we we can tend to lose uh, some of that. So there were some that did. There were some that went absolutely opposite direction. But uh, why is this has not always been the case in, right. in this country? Why have we gotten and how have we gotten to the point where there are bosses that are, you know, running their companies into the ground and yeah. are, are walking away with with tons of money? How is that happening? Why? Very generous golden parachutes. Th yeah. There are a number of factors. Some of them have to do with really arcane things about stock options and expenses. Some of them have to do with our, our taxing system. And there, one theory is that when when uh, tax rates were at a much higher level, CEOs didn't try so hard to get paid so much because they wouldn't take as much home. Now, you know, the pay rate, the tax is very low on the, on the top level of wealth. So those are some of the theories. Um, I think some of it is social mores. And I think we're starting to see a reversal. I've been doing CEO pay work uh, from an investor perspective for about 30 years. And I used to not get any sort of attention or traction when I walked into a party. And now it's something that people are really looking at and really talking about. Some of that is because we now do have more disclosure, which a lot of folks worked very hard to get. So we know more and now we can do different. So what do we do to make it different? I mean, do we shame these guys? Because if I'm making like $50 million, I don't feel the shame. <laughs> well, <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, shaming them might be hard. Um, sh as shareholders, we can vote against pay packages and against the compensation committee directors. And I think for as shaming the CEOs might not be very effective, shaming a director here and there might might be more useful. Um, you know, and if you are, for example, if your money is with CalPERS, if you have a, CalPERS does a great job and votes against pay a lot. TIAA votes against pay, CEO pay very rarely. So it's it's worth checking to see, you know, if you have a 401k or a pension plan, 
how your fund does. And we have a report uh, that covers that every year and updates it every year um, and looks at the voting practices. And, and that's one way. And then there are, you know, lots of folks in Washington looking at, at possibilities there, um, making different suggestions. And uh, we'll have to see how it all pans out. But I, I think it's, you know, the AFL-CIO Paywatch site is fantastic. Um, and, you know, just released and sortable on many levels. You can look up S&P 500 companies. I think it's just a really curious fact, no matter where you are, to find out who, who, how much the median employee makes where you work, right? It, are you above or below? So is it's, this a, it's a fantastic website. Is this something that is specific to American companies? I mean, do other countries have similar issues or is this something that only we can be proud of? <laughs> well... Probably not proud. Yeah, no. Uh, the U.S. is is the outlier here by by a long shot. Um, and again, there could be a number of explanations for that. But when I look at voting, for example, the Europeans vote against almost all our pay packages because they just they can see it and they look at it and like this doesn't make any sense. You know, you you need the same thing in France or Germany or wherever to be a great CEO, and they've got very competent people doing it for a whole lot less. So now, unfortunately, this is just us to a large extent. Rosanna Landis-Weaver, compensation expert, program manager, as you so, a nonprofit shareholder advocacy organization. So we've established your company's CEO is getting even richer thanks to the pandemic. Now he or she is asking you to come back to work. How are you feeling about that? KYW's Matt Leon talked to Alyssa Myers, brands reporter for Morning Consults, a global data intelligence company, explaining the results of a new survey. The goal was really just to gauge employees' general views on the return to office process now that that's starting um, and really come to understand their ideal scenarios um, and heading back into the workplace in person. And give me kind of the top line numbers. What's the overview here as far as what people want when it comes to returning to work? Yeah, in terms of uh, the ideal timeline, there was hardly a consensus. Um, you know, as, as you mentioned, kind of a surprising number that we saw 12 percent uh, of employees uh, said that they have no interest in returning to the workplace ever. Um, you know, maybe surprisingly low for some people, but 12 percent, you know, it's not nothing. That is a share of the population who says I want to work from home forever. Uh, we also saw 48% of employed Americans say that they can already go back into their office in person. So this process is well underway. People are starting in-person work again, uh, whether that be full-time or more of a hybrid model. But to some capacity, close to half um, of working Americans can access their offices again. Uh, and then we had 40% of people weigh in with a timeline of when they'd like to go back to work, whether that be in the next two weeks um, or six months from now. So 40% of people fell within that range. But, you know, like I said, hardly a consensus there. They were pretty evenly split uh, between, you know, the share that said two to three weeks from now, a few months from now, six months from now. Uh, so it really depends on who you ask for exactly when they're going to feel ready to go back to in-person work. Um, did you guys, and when you break it down, you know, cross tabs and kind of drilled down into the numbers, were there group age groups generations whatever it be that were more anxious about going back into the workplace more that wanted to stay home more were there any any groups that really stood out 
there were a couple in terms of the the groups that prefer remote work, the people who said they're they're most likely to want to work from home for the foreseeable future or for, you know, the long term uh, members of, of Generation X. So, you know, uh, a little bit um, of the the older generations there. Also, women were slightly more likely than men and then the general population of employed adults uh, to be in that group of people who said they want to stay fully remote. You know, as you referenced, I was stunned that that 12 percent number of people that wanted to stay home, that that want to stay remote work permanently. I thought that would be higher. I feel like a lot of the narratives that have been woven in the media out there was that going to be higher. But, you know, personally, as someone who tracks this stuff, did that surprise you? It did surprise me a little bit. Um, I think, you know, at first when I saw that 12%, I thought it was a little bit low. I might have anticipated more people were really liking the fully remote model. Um, But when I started to think about it a little bit more, um, you know, flexibility, I think, is also the the narrative that we're, we've been hearing and the name of the game. And I think that there is a lot of room for that and a lot of gray area in between, you know, saying I never want to go to the office again and saying I'm ready right now, five days a week in the office. Uh, so I think a lot of people are probably existing somewhere in between there where they're liking hybrid work. Maybe they only want to go in one day, two days, uh, maybe even less than once a week. But yeah, I was I was surprised at first about that 12%, thinking about it a little bit more. Um, you know, it makes sense. I think that a lot of people want at least a few days here and there back in the office. We are we're looking at this through employees' eyes. I'm guessing if you're an employer reading these numbers and you you said the word, the the password would be flexibility, right? It absolutely would be, yes. That is, you know, what the the data seems to be showing and what I heard certainly from a lot of work for, workforce and HR experts. Um, people have gotten very used to working from home. In some cases, they have, you know, moved away from where they lived before the pandemic to, you know, live somewhere else under the impression that they'd be able to do their job remotely for the foreseeable future. Um, you know, in some cases, they have kind of adjusted their their lifestyles and their working lives to care for their children, care for elderly parents or whoever that might be who they're responsible for. Um, and sometimes people have just found in the past year that they really preferred working from home. Maybe you're an introvert and you find you're more productive just, you know, in your own space, not having to worry about that water cooler conversation. Maybe that's more of a distraction for you. Um, but, you know, that's what I've been hearing is that, that we've got all these different types of people, all these different reasons, um, you know, for people wanting to work remote. And the narrative used to be more that, you know, employees would say before the pandemic, well, remote workers, they're less productive. You know, you're not as productive if you're not in the office. Um, And I think that that concept is kind of fading away. It's more of a thing of the past. And even that mere suggestion these days, I think, might really put off or offend some employees. Um, So all of that's to say, I think that employers need to be very careful about how they're going about, you know, setting up and phrasing these return to office mandates, um, for lack of a better word, I guess, so that they don't seem so demanding. Um, And at the very least, kind of bring employees into the conversation um, and ask them what they want try different things, be flexible, not only with them and their models, but with what works in general. You know, if you try something out and the plan for returning to the office isn't working, might want to think about switching it up. And to that point, we are in a moment where we're seeing a lot of people walking away from their jobs because Mm -hmm. it's not fulfilling. And I would imagine you kind of read into these numbers, 
and people want flexibility, you've really, if you're an employer, you've really got to be cognizant that uh, a lot of people are in a mind space where if I'm not getting a lot out of my job, I'm prepared to walk away. They are absolutely. And and that actually ties back to um, some of our, our regular return to normal, return to the, the office and workspace trend tracking data. Um, we have a, a stat from that trend data that we update every week that indicates 46% of people who are currently wo- working remote due to the pandemic say that they would consider quitting their job if they felt like they were being asked to come back before they felt like it was safe. Um, and, you know, as, as we've all been hearing, one of the big focuses of today's data and of these stories in general is kind of the fact that the job market is favoring employees these days. You know, people are hiring, workers are in demand, and so they have the opportunity now to maybe ask for, for more from employers than they would have a year or two years ago. Um, so yeah, it just, you know, today's report, I think kind of elaborates on, on some of those ways that employers can improve, you know, or avoid that situation. Um, and, and just, yeah, underscores that data that, yeah, employees have these preferences and they have their ideal scenarios in their head, whether that be timeline of return to the office, office layout, some of the the extras kind of in there that employers and businesses are thinking about. Um, If they're not satisfied with the situation that they are getting, they're considering quitting. The family of a 24-year-old man who got sick with COVID and needed a double lung transplant has a warning for people who are not vaccinated. They say he was the only one in his family who didn't get a COVID vaccine because he wanted to wait a few years to see about side effects. Well, he got infected in April while in Florida, then had trouble breathing and was put on a ventilator. His stepdad says the man told him he had wished he had gotten the vaccine as soon as he got to the hospital. The man did vape, but didn't have underlying medical conditions that can make COVID worse. He's still on a ventilator and unable to speak. You can find this Odyssey original on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.